Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snack Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Hey, this is Power Card, aka Project Pat, and you're listening to the Baltimore Beatdown Podcast, the best Ravens podcast on the planet. That's pretty incredible. In fact, it's La Marvelous. Thank you guys. All right, welcome on back to another edition of the Baltimore Beatdown podcast. It is Wednesday, May 6th, currently Tuesday, May 5th. Cinco de Drinco, Drinco de Mayo, which which kind of guy were you? That says a lot about a person, I think. Uh, neither. Not really. I do like margaritas, though. Okay, fair enough. Any any celebration in that sense, or are you just kind of keeping it low-key? Just low-key, man. Just trying to survive this uh, this period of time we're yep. all going through right now. Yep, we certainly are. And uh, we are here today because we are starting the first of a new series that I have tentatively titled Back in the Day, where uh, you, me, everyone else from the site, Spencer, we go back and rewatch old Ravens games. So it's kind of like a, I don't necessarily want to call it a rewatchables ripoff, but maybe we could call it rewatchables ripoff adjacent. Uh, kind of just in that type of category of just going back and going through old games. Didn't want to just limit it to games. Maybe we'll do old drafts, all that good stuff. So, uh, yeah, man, I'm pretty excited. It's a new format, something I've been thinking about doing for a really long time, even before coronavirus. So I think the fact that it happened, you know, it kind of made it as good a time as any with no live sports or anything going on. And uh, now that we're after the draft, I figured it was a good time to get into it. You picked a good game. I This may be the least memorable playoff game in Ravens team history I really did not remember almost anything about this one and uh, it was a tight game throughout yeah definitely Um, that's part of the reason why I picked it is because it felt like it was a game that it's very good but you don't really remember much about it especially because of the end result I mean spoilers they lose this one so uh, you maybe want to block this out of your memory a little bit but yeah it's early 2000s before all the technology and the Twitter and everything and it's pre Flacco uh, post Super Bowl so it's kind of in that hazy early aughts grade period uh, underneath Billick where maybe they were making it to the playoffs here and there but they didn't really have a ton of success so this one was the 2003 wild card game the 12 and 4 Tennessee Titans Came in to take on the Ravens, who were 10-6 and six that year. So 2003, where were you in 2003? We were talking about this a little bit offline. Sophomore year of college, and I was taking uh, accounting, I think macro accounting over Wintermester during this game down in College Park. Um, 
so that probably has plays into the fact that I don't remember too much about it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were saying that I was throughout the 03 season, I was eight. And then I think or may, no, maybe I, w- I had turned nine years old when the 03 season started. So I really don't remember much of the season. Don't even know if I really watched this game. I was living in South Carolina at the time, so I wasn't 100 percent in on the Ravens quite yet. Uh, it was kind of a confusing uh, way to grow up, moving back and forth between the two states, as I've talked about before. But yeah, so 03, I mean, as much as we kind of talk about that, it was sort of a monumental year for them because it's a draft class that includes Kyle Bowler, Terrell Suggs in the first round, and then fourth round you get Jarek Johnson. And then they also got Ovi Mugeli that year, the fullback, who was like, I think, an all-pro with a couple other teams. I don't know if he did a ton for them, but that's a pretty good draft class. Mahaley, yeah, he was. I think it was the Falcons. Um this was really a transitional time in Ravens history. Obviously, they won the Super Bowl in 2000, and that Super Bowl run was really fueled by a lot of veterans that they had brought in um, a spending spree. I know the Ravens aren't known to dip their toe into free agency, but they really did. And then in 2001, they had a salary cap purge. They released um, Shannon Sharp, Rod Woodson, Rod Burnett, Tony Siragusa, Sam Adams lost Jamie Sharper to the Texans in the expansion draft, as well as Jermaine Lewis. Um, So that was 2001. And then 2002 was Michael McCrary's last year. And the 2002 team exceeded expectations um, because they they really just went down to bare bones um, in a a way that kind of the window had closed and they wanted to open a new window. And this... 2013 team obviously they won a division that year the AFC North after the realignment um, they really uh, started climbing back up that hill to uh, to become a contender again yeah I think this 2003 you mentioned that it's a transition and I definitely agree with that and it does feel sort of like it was Billick kind of trying to put his own stamp on the organization because he gets there in 99 the next year they win the Super Bowl as a wild card with you know, a complete ragtag squad on offense, which is what he was known for was offense, which people are, you know, easy or quick to forget because of the fact that he won with that defensive team. But, you know, he wins with Trent Dilfer at quarterback and it's kind of this offense that he's not used to running. And maybe he doesn't feel like he a hundred percent gets the credit he deserves. So maybe he turns around in 2003 and says, I'm going to go and get this big armed kid out of Cal. And uh, we're going to try and morph this into my type of deal. And so they do end up going to the playoffs that year. Uh, it wasn't really as a result of Kyle Bowler's play, though. Do you remember Kyle Bowler's season in 2003 very well? Uh, not off the top of my head, but I did do a little research, and it looked like he started, I think, the first nine games or so. I think eight. Until eight games, and then Anthony Wright took over. He led a amazing comeback against the Seahawks. I do remember that game, um, and then Wright just kind of took off from there. Bowler, man, what an anchor he was on the franchise. They wasted a lot of good years, awesome defenses with him uh, under center. Just one of those guys that had all the physical talent, like the the throwing 70 yards on his knees or whatever is something that kind of got brought up a lot and how he could like hit crossbars and stuff from these weird angles with his arm. But he was pretty bad in college, uh, to be honest, too, which is kind of a uh, interesting thing to have happen when you're such a high draft pick. I think Chris Sims talks about a lot how he kind of wanted to go to the Ravens, uh, and he was pretty convinced they were going to pick him in maybe the late first or 
uh, some point during the second round, maybe by trading or something like that. And he was like, yeah, I was just straight up way better than Kyle Buller. Everyone who was playing in college that year kind of agreed that he wasn't very good. He was just a physically talented guy, and that's kind of what got him drafted. And maybe that comes across as sour grapes, you know, 15, however many years later. But uh, yeah, at the time, you know, they go and get him. They wanted to make him the uh, face of the franchise. And you'll do desperate things when you're looking for a quarterback. And that definitely is what happened to them. But yeah, he starts those first eight or nine games, whatever it was, goes down with a thigh injury against the Rams. It said he at that point had a seven to nine touchdown to interception ratio, which is sick. And the Ravens were, <laughs> were five and three with him playing that way. Yeah, not great. Uh, he just, uh, I don't think he necessarily had the, the mental acumen to really thrive as a quarterback. You know, that proved out throughout his career. And although he did have a big arm, he wasn't accurate in a, in a lot of ways. The other thing that really struck me about this team, they, what a homegrown. I mean, almost the entire three deep was homegrown. Besides uh, Anthony Wright and uh, the wide receiver, too, Marcus Robinson, who came over from the Bears, every single player that played in this game was drafted or, or developed by the Ravens. Yeah, and some of them, they were definite what-if guys that we're going to get into, like Travis Taylor. We're probably going to talk about who was a draft pick by them that was a promising guy athletically, but maybe just wasn't kind of putting it all together. Heap was pretty much in his prime at that point. He had got drafted two years earlier, I think, so he was pretty much in full force. But you mentioned Anthony Wright, undrafted free agent out of South Carolina in 1999. So he starts with the Steelers as a UDFA, goes to the Cowboys, actually sees a little bit of action, uh, I think under head coach Dave Campo. And I don't know who it was with that he was kind of battling for that starting job, but they decided against going with him, and they released him to allow him to go somewhere else to try and become a starter. Goes to the Ravens practice squad in 2002, makes their final roster, I believe, in 2003, and then when Bowler gets injured, he steps in uh, to that Rams game, I think, and then the next week, his first start is a loss to the Miami Dolphins. Do you want to guess the score? Um, loss to Miami Dolphins... 12 to 9. 6 to 9. 6 to 9. <laughs> yeah. That's a nice number. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it's just even funnier because you mentioned that big comeback against the Seahawks. So it's a tough scene with Miami game. But he goes in there into that Seahawks game. He fires four touchdown passes, forces overtime at 41. Stover finishes it off with a field goal. I was talking about this on Twitter the other day when I was doing research for this. It was just one of the all-time regular season games where maybe going to have to go back and watch that for this format uh, at some point because it just looked awesome. And the scene in the locker room afterwards was great too, right? It was just completely fired up. It was on the day of his daughter's birth too. So pretty pretty great wow. day for him. Oh, no kidding. No kidding. I think it was four touchdowns in the fourth quarter to come back. Yeah, I think all to Robinson. And Robinson was his collegiate teammate. Uh, with the Gamecocks, so they had that that uh, that camaraderie. That that was exciting. Yeah, definitely for sure. So they go on. They win five of their last six with Wright starting. They go ten and six, and uh, first ever division title in franchise history, two thousand three. Yeah, what was it? Two thousand two. I think they realigned the divisions because before that the Ravens were in the Central, and that was with, five uh, teams, right? Yeah, it was five teams, and it was Tennessee um, and Jacksonville were kind of the top dogs in the Central out when the Ravens were the first few years there, and then they realigned. And um, the Pittsburgh obviously became their their rival immediately, but um, I think I guess it was the second year after they realigned. 
Yeah, maybe. Those are three. Yeah, so, you know, like we mentioned, they, they're they 10-6. and six. They play host to the 12-4 and four Tennessee Titans, really good team. They were the wild card to the Indianapolis Colts uh, when Peyton Manning was at the peak of his powers. And Steve McNair was still their quarterback, and he was the co-MVP of that season. Do you know who the other MVP was? Of 03? Yeah. Uh, Sean Alexander? No, so he split it with Peyton Manning. Same division, oh, okay. same position. Isn't that pretty crazy? Like, you imagine <laughs> that happening today? No, absolutely not. Uh, I guess they split the, the series that year. That's uh, that's kind of odd. Yeah, something must have happened, but they split it, and then uh, the Associated Press writes, Manning and McNair led their team to 12-4 and records, with Manning's Indianapolis Colts edging McNair's Tennessee Titans for the AFC South crown by winning both games against the Titans. There you go. But they deadlocked for MVP. It is great, McNair said. My words can't express how I feel being co-MVP with another great quarterback like Peyton. It's very emotional for me right now that people look at me as being one of the top quarterbacks in the NFL, one of the top players, and a co-MVP. Manning naturally felt the same way. This is such a tremendous honor, Manning said. Obviously, you look at all the former winners, it really is an honor to be on the same list and to have such great teammates and coaching staff that allowed me to go out and make plays and to be sharing it with Steve, a player I have uh, the most respect for and who has had a tremendous year and to be ahead of guys like Tom Brady, who's a friend of mine, and Jamal Lewis, a former teammate of mine at Tennessee who easily could have been there as well. It's tremendous. Well, true gentleman. True gentleman. Yeah, Jamal was right up there, right? This was his big 2,000-yard season. I think uh, a large percentage came against Cleveland, two <laughs> massive games, but uh, he was a horse behind that big, strong offensive line they had. Yeah, he was, and he was definitely helped carrying them because uh, Wright did a good job as a game manager but didn't necessarily carry the offense. Jamal was definitely the linchpin, and uh, like we mentioned, Heap and some of those receivers are doing a nice job. But, yeah, I mean, back to the Titans, you still had, obviously, McNair we touched on as the MVP. Eddie George getting a little bit older but still effective. Titans D was nasty. Yeah, the defensive front, Kevin Carter, uh, Hainsworth, Javon Kirsch. Javon Kirsch, and I think he was a little past his prime, but he doesn't get enough due. He was a super freak. He was kind of, before Julius Peppers, kind of that prototype edge rusher. Um, and uh, obviously, Samari Roll on the back end. Think about this. Ozzy ended up picking up later after this game, McNair. Uh, Derek Mason and Samori Rolls. So obviously he admired this this team that uh, Tennessee had put together. I kept doing double takes when I was watching it because like it's in that time period where it's a little nebulous and you're like, oh wait, Roll was on the Titans at the time. Like Mason wasn't with the Ravens yet. Like McNair was still with. Like you know, it's just kind of one of those funny things where Ozzy did sort of. I think he maybe saw in the Titans what he had built. With the Ravens, with that first Super Bowl winning team, he, he kind of liked the toughness, so he wanted to emulate that a little bit. So he went and picked those guys up later on. But yeah, a lot of uh, shared heritage between the team with these two, uh, or between these two teams with these players. But getting into the game, so Ravens led by Wright and Jamal Lewis on offense, like we mentioned. On D, you got the usual suspects with Ray and Ed and everyone, but it also features a lot of guys outside of just them who we're going to get to at some point. And, I mean, just getting into the game, so January 3rd, 2004, any guesses as to the number one song on the charts? I feel like it's kind of an easy one. (laughs) I have no clue. 2004? Yep. Uh, I don't know. Maybe uh, something from 50 Cent? Hey Ya by Outkast. Okay, okay. 
I say that's easy because like that was just so overplayed. It was like when I was in elementary school and that like song appeals to like younger kids. So like they would play it at all our like functions and stuff. And I probably heard that song way more times than I would care to admit. But kind of it was kind of tough to find like historical stuff for this exact month. But I think exactly one month later on this date, Mark Zuckerberg creates the website, the Facebook for use by Harvard students. Certainly uh, an impactful uh, occurrence there. Yeah, definitely. Not sure how it totally relates to this, but I wanted to give some historical context. And uh, this game was pre-Facebook, so there you go. But uh, yeah, let's jump into the game. And the NFL's most valuable defensive player, Pro Bowl linebacker, number 52, Ray Lewis! So Ray's intro, obviously iconic. Um, hot in here. How, how is that playing in, in 2020, do you think? Just how does that like resonate with the young folks? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I don't think that's uh, their cup of tea these days. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, it's... I think it, uh, it's something that definitely fires you up a little bit, but you also think about it, you know, maybe in a little bit of a cornier light, but we don't have to spend too much time on that. Uh, obviously, so the game opens, and uh, the first thing in my notes that I had was it is a aggressively early 2000s broadcast. Yeah, Al McGuire, the, uh, or sorry, Paul McGuire, the yeah, color yeah. man, he, uh, he got lost in the woods a few times during the broadcast. Well, it's him uh, and it's it's Mike Patrick. I don't know if I remember him too well. And then Joe Theismann in the mix too. Theismann wasn't bad, but McGuire's just going on and on and on about people, you know, just not taking penalties and just off the rails. <laughs> I, think, I, I think, yeah, I think Theismann was kind of doing the same thing a little bit with some of that stuff. And, uh, yeah, we're definitely going to be getting into that. But, yeah, you've got them and then the sideline reporter Susie Colbert. So shout out to Susie. Susie, remember her at, uh, her moment of fame with Joe Namath? Yeah, I mean, who could forget? She certainly hasn't, um, unless maybe she's gone to some sort of a hypnotherapist. I wouldn't blame her. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, so jumping into the game, like we mentioned, the broadcasts are showing both of the sidelines. I always forget just how much of like a G Steve McNair was and how sick his high-pitched voice was. You ever notice that? Uh, I don't remember his voice particularly. No, no. But uh, oh, well, let's go. Why twenty-two? What? <laughs> I thought Billick looked pretty, pretty G out there on the Ravens sideline. He definitely did. He was rocking the. What did he? Is that kind of like a windbreaker type thing? Would you describe that as? What? What was that? Uh, was it like the starter? It was like a starter or no? It was. It might have been post starter, but it was the same idea. Yeah, those were pretty sick. They mentioned, yeah, they mentioned it was like kind of spring weather in January at the time. Uh, pretty interesting, you know, 2003. So uh, who knows what was going on there. But yeah, I mean, jumping into the actual football. Ravens' first possession, it's a three and out. Titans just drive right down the field, and they punch it in with a right side run to Chris Brown. Their change of pace back. Uh, looks like Ray kind of got swallowed up on the play by center Justin Hardwick, and it's very quickly seven to nothing. McNair, they give it off to Brown, and Brown into the end zone for a touchdown. 
the rookie from Colorado. Well, if you're going to run, why not run behind two big guys? Benji Olsen and Fred Miller on the right side opened up a fantastic hole. Chris Brown is a changeup for the Tennessee Titan offense. He's quicker than Eddie George. Look at the hole. Really goes in untouched, and if you're going to run against the Ravens, you've got to block Ray Lewis. There's a good job by Justin Hardwig, the center. Tennessee just gashed the Ravens front, and this was the first year they switched to the 34. Um, at McCrary was gone, and they were really banged up. Peter Boulware was out with um, with a knee injury. Adelius Thomas was on injured reserve. Uh, Terrell Suggs and Jared Johnson were both rookies. They were still coming along. Bart Scott hadn't really taken playing time, but yeah, they just they really pushed that D around outside of. Kelly Gray, they didn't have a whole lot of, of meat up front. Um, to uh, And, yeah, they got two blockers on Ray, and Chris Brown, the third rounder out of Colorado, punched it in. Yeah, I mean, Kelly Gray actually did stand out, I think, on that drive. And I was just immediately reminded what a big man he was. And he was given, uh, they said, a five-year contract extension. And I just got to imagine that was triggering you watching it. <laughs> yeah, I guess a little bit. Um he was he wasn't overpaid. He was he was properly paid. He was all about leverage. He was just so low, and he was a wrestler, and he was just you know all about leverage. But the the defense th- didn't really come back around until they picked Haloti Nada a few years down the road to get that because they needed they just needed some D linemen at that point, and they didn't have them. Did anything like immediately stand out to you after watching both teams possess the ball? Just about the way football was played seventeen years ago. Oh yeah, it was just. It was just three yards in a cloud of dust. I mean, not, uh, you know, 1960s style, but uh, maybe four yards in a cloud of dust. Two tight ends, just uh, dives and off tackle, power blocking, and not a whole lot of passing. Definitely. And uh, especially with these two teams, you know, you had McNair getting a little bit older. Uh, he got banged up at certain points throughout this game. And then obviously Wright was had his limitations as a passer. He had some moxie, but, you know, he wasn't lighting it up out there. So definitely it's kind of like watching a different sport at this point. We talk about like positional value and all that stuff these days. It kind of wasn't really it didn't line up the same way then that it does now. Uh, and just the way the passing boom of the 2010s has completely changed everything. Uh, but it is, I think, pretty fun to watch because it's a different type of chess match where it's like, OK, I don't know if like. My quarterback is going to be Patrick Mahomes running around back there converting third and 13s with just this rocket arm. I've got to play field position. I've got to, you know, do things a little bit differently than the way we're used to seeing them. So from that aspect, I think I enjoyed it. Oh, yeah, for sure. It was a field position game, time of possession game way more because it was just harder to pass back then. There weren't as many accurate passers and the rules were not as favorable to offense. So it made more sense to run and it made more sense to prioritize those positions at that time. Definitely. So the Ravens, they get a big return. It gets wiped out by holding. Uh, Some things never do change when it comes to football returns (laughs) getting wiped out. Uh, So they go three and out again on a drop by Heap. And then a nice return by, you mentioned, Derek Mason, who was returning punts for them, which I didn't ever really remember him having that aspect of his game. And so the Titans start driving again. Uh, They're getting, you know, some pretty nice plays together. But then all of a sudden the game flips. And how does it flip? This one tipped by Reed and intercepted by Will Demps. 30. Gets a block. 20. 10. Demps. Touchdown. 56 yards. 
Well, who else but the ball hawk? Ed Reed tips a pass in the seam to Will Demps, and Demps promptly returns it for a 56-yard touchdown. Uh, really reckless pass from McNair. Ed Hartwell almost got his hand on that ball, too. Uh, but we'll get to it later. But McNair made a couple questionable decisions in this game. Yeah, he definitely did. It felt like he got bailed out in certain spots as well. But what did, Will Demps, like I didn't even remember that name, I don't think. What was your kind of lasting impression of him as the safety next to Reed there at that time? He was a solid player. He was a really solid player. Eventually was replaced by Dewan Landry. Um, but he, he made some plays, and, and he was pretty good stuff in the run. I actually ran into him this time last year at an engagement party, uh, believe it or not. But uh, but he was a solid player, one of those UDFA gems that the Ravens find and and find a place for. Um, And he he was probably one of the defensive players of the game in this game. What was that conversation like? I didn't, I didn't, uh, we didn't converse, but uh, he he was actually, I think he's married to a Greek girl. So he was Greek dancing on the other side of, uh, of the, at the engagement party. Did you try to like out Greek him a little bit out alpha him on the dance floor there? Um, no, you can't out, out alpha, uh, Will Demps. Plus I'm Greek. So I kind of always out Greek him. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but yeah, I mean, so he goes ahead and scores on that play. It was a pretty sick pick six too. I mean, like the whole, you mentioned Reed tipping it to him. There's just that whole aspect of it. He grabs it. He weaves his way left and then back to the right. Uh, and like we mentioned, the Ravens had done nothing on offense at that point. Total yards. We're talking 51 seconds left in the first quarter. Total yards. Titans 108. Ravens 9. All tied up at 7 apiece. I think it was McGuire maybe who said the Ravens have done nothing on offense and are in a 7-7 ball game. Over under how many times we've heard that from a broadcast crew in our lifetimes. Uh, 543. And I'm going to go with the over. But So <laughs> we get to the next drive. Titans stall out. They pin the Ravens with a good punt. Uh, and you get another three and out. I mean, they call a QB draw with right. They were backed up on third and 16 very deep. I kind of didn't know what they were doing, but maybe that's just a situation where you're like, okay, we just have this journeyman quarterback uh, who's a little athletic, so we're going to use him to try and gain some field position here and just kind of, for lack of a better word, punt on this drive. I mean, that's exactly what they did. They just couldn't get anything going. They were backed up. Jamal's getting stuffed. I think he had... 15 yards at halftime, just getting stuffed every play. They, tr- they try to screen pass to Jamal on uh, on second down that Samari Roll blew up. And the Ravens at that time had a big, strong offensive line. Uh, Mulatalo, Ogden, uh, Zeus Sr., um, even uh, Benny Anderson and Flynn. But Tennessee was just pushing them around, and, and Wright wasn't really trying to push the ball downfield. And uh, they were lucky to be – in this game at this point. Yeah, so, and you mentioned pushing them, around, pushing them around with their defense against the Ravens' offense. They were kind of pushing around their defense with their O-line as well. Uh, you know, McNair was getting some stuff going. George was getting rolling a little bit as well. And then they're moving into the Ravens' red zone, I believe, on the very next drive. McNair sneaks for a little bit of a scummy third-down conversion. I, I don't know if I totally believed the spot on that one, but one of the uh, one of the errant broadcasters made the comment that it was by the nose of the ball. And McNair does just that. 
Had his legs cut out from under him, this spot will be close. If they Marcus it, Douglas dove at his legs and cut him down. If they put it on the line, he's got a first down, and it is a first down. By the nose of the ball. Just by the nose. You okay? Yeah, I just want to <laughs> right. nose of the ball. Yeah, that was McGuire again. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, they were driving. Tennessee was ahead of the sticks throughout the first quarter, and they had the Ravens behind. But uh, who is it again but Mr. Ed Reed? Another interception in the red zone on another reckless pass up the seam. I think he threw it right to him. I mean, McNair, I don't know if he didn't see him or, or what it was, but, uh, but Reed bailed out the Ravens again. And he's got a smile on his face right now, facing third and about three. McNair with time. Throws it! I gotta imagine you just jumped out of your seat when that happened. Yeah, definitely. And then the other, the second half interception was exciting too. Yeah, definitely. That's my my other guy. I mean, that one was freaking amazing. We'll obviously get to that. But yeah, so Reed, he gets McNair in the red zone, like you mentioned there. And Eddie George actually hurt while tackling Ed Reed. It's later determined to be a dislocated left shoulder. Yeah, I don't buy that. You don't dislocate your shoulder, pop it back in, and then start stiff-arming Ray Lewis with the same arm three plays later. But uh, I don't know. Maybe they were embellishing a little bit there. Maybe it's just the guys in the early 2000s were a lot tougher. Did you ever think about that? I don't think I've ever heard you make that point before. You know, that's a good point now that you mentioned that, Jake. You might be onto something with that one. Yeah, who, who could say, but... All we know is that it leads to another three and out for the Ravens. I think I wanted to highlight this one specifically because it contained a second and long call with right under center, a full house formation with Alan Ricard and Chester Taylor behind him. The result was a false start, which is (laughs) Anderson, right? Was it Anderson with the false start or no, it was uh, Terry Jones. Yeah. Is that the other Jones Jr.? The Alabama backup tight end, the okay. uh, Alabama player that Ozzie couldn't couldn't pass on a on a uh, Alabama tight end in the mid rounds. He saw it as the second coming of him at tight end there, but yeah, I mean, so that was sick. They punt again, and then the highlight of that drive, I thought, was, and I, I'm sure you like this too. Would have been a flag in 2020 for sure, but it was Ray just absolutely leveling McNair. I believe he was scrambling, uh, but they definitely wouldn't have called that today. Oh, yeah, he blew him up. Ray was all over the field in this game. Um, that was vintage Ray. You saw that closing speed, that burst, that sideline to sideline. Really what everybody's hoping Patrick Queen's going to kind of develop. But he was, you know, there's not a lot of players that have that kind of range. And that's really what made him so special early in his career. It was a different kind of speed even for the time, I thought. Like, I know middle linebackers are less emphasized now, but he looks every bit as fast as, like, a modern, awesome linebacker these days. Oh, yeah, at least, at least. I think he looked as fast as, you know, uh, a corner at some some place. Yep, definitely. And so they're three and out after that. They punt back to the Ravens, so a lot of punts to start this one off. But Anthony Wright really starts to get things going on this drive, picks up a first down, I think first to Travis Taylor, next one to Heap, and you love to hear those uh, Heap chants going pretty strong. Oh, he got behind Tank Williams, and Tank didn't have a chance. 
You talk about the perfect throw. This throw by Anthony Wright to Todd Heap was right on target. It's to the outside. Tank Williams is number 25. Here comes the ball up over the top. Look, the linebacker can't get up. Look where Tank Williams is. He's to the inside. Heap is to the outside. That's the perfect throw. Yeah, Heap had a tough start to this game. Uh, he dropped the ball on third down, like you said. He also had a drive-stalling penalty, and then he really turned it on. Nice, beautiful sideline toe-tap catch. Um, and they, that, this drive, again, they started behind the sticks. They gave up a sack on first down to Kevin Carter. And, uh, and right, yeah, he did find his rhythm here going, going in close towards halftime. Yeah, definitely. So they're, they're pretty much rolling at that point, right? Bootleg run for the first down on the very next play. It's set up by right tackle Orlando Brown Sr., Zeus. And so he sets that up. But then a very bizarre situation, I don't know if you wrote this down, I was definitely zeroing in on it, but he gets into a scuffle with Javon Curse, results in a personal foul, and it was either Maguire or Theismann, I think it might have been Theismann, uh, who just starts lighting into him, and he says, <laughs> this is the stupidity of Zeus. This for a couple down to the 23, and there's a flag a, down at the end of the play. Yeah, this is the stupidity of Zeus, the right tackle, Orlando, Orlando Brown, Brown, number 78. You know that you're now his players, now he's pushing his own players around. Orlando Brown's temper has gotten him in more problems. And he he levels Javon Kirst, Joe. I mean, this is absolutely stupid. You're downfield. Look at this. This is after the play. Now watch. He just takes Javon Kirst and throws him on the ground. Well, Javon, come on. After nice. the play is over. Personal foul. Unnecessary roughness. Number 78 in the offense. That's a 15-yard penalty to start his rant off i was like okay what's going on here uh, so that, that was a <laughs> and i didn't i didn't think it was that egregious i mean okay it was slightly past the whistle and he gave a little extra push and then curse fell on the ground and wrote, did three log rolls and pretended like he'd been shot <laughs> i mean maybe it was a pen it was, I, I think it was a cheap penalty if anything i think that could literally that could have gone cold you see stuff like that after plays all the time not get called i was gonna say that stuff still happens to this day and goes uncalled so i don't know why the the broadcast team was absolutely losing their marbles but interesting anecdote about this so the game is being refed by the infamous jeff triplett who is known for just being a terrible ref i believe he's now retired uh for you know since a couple of years at least but thankfully thankfully yeah so he's infamous for that he's also infamous for i don't know if you even know this but he's the one who a few years prior to this hit Zeus in the eye with the flag. I didn't know that that was that same. No, I didn't know that it was the same ref. So I did a little research. Zeus passed away in 2010, obviously, RIP. His son now plays for the Ravens, so kind of a cool, feel-good story. But when he passed away in 2010, Daniel E. Slotnick of the New York Times wrote, it looks like a little obituary-type article for him. I don't know if I'd exactly call it that. But, yeah, so he said that, in his article, he says, Brown was sidelined by an accident on December 19th, 1999, while playing for the Browns in a game against the Jacksonville Jaguars. When the referee, Jeff Triplett, tossed his flag, weighted with BBs, it struck Brown in the right eye, missing his helmet's face guard. Brown walked off the field, but furious, he returned and shoved Triplett to the turf. The league suspended him indefinitely for assaulting Triplett, but lifted the suspension after it was found that the flag had temporarily blinded Brown. The Browns released him in 2000. In 2001, Brown sued the league for $200 million, saying the flag incident prematurely ended his career. 
According to reports, he settled for a sum between 15 and $25 million in 2002. Brown came out of retirement in 2003 to play for the Ravens, and as a blocker, he became an integral part of running back Jamal Lewis's 2066-yard rushing season. Brown started 35 games before retiring in 2005. So he manages to push Jeff Triplett to the ground, get away from Cleveland, make a shit ton of money off of that lawsuit, and then he comes back and plays for the Ravens, uh, clearing the way for Jamal Lewis, and now his son plays for them. So kind of a cool story arc there for Zeus Jr., despite all the flack that he's getting. Uh, uh, for sure. And he went. He was started with the Cleveland, came to Baltimore with when the team moved, then went back to Cleveland, then came back to Baltimore. But that's why they don't throw the flags. They used to throw the flags like directly at the players. And they, is, but like, now what, they throw is, it onto the field where it's where the penalty occurred. What is the thought process behind throwing it at a player? <laughs> like, I guess is, to to identify which player committed the foul. But but now they throw it towards the the yard, you know, the yard where it should be enforced from. And that's why that's what changed it. That was a big deal. That was a big deal. And most people, I thought, were on, were on Zeus's side at the time. Even you know, even nationally or Sports Center back then, they were like, why? You know, he hit him in the eye with the ball bearings, like you said. I'll tell you what, man, it probably wasn't Theismann or uh, McGuire or whoever it was that was just lighting into him because he had this and then he had some other sketchy comments about him near the end of the game that we're going to get to. But <laughs> So we go back to the game here. So that penalty basically kills the whole drive. Uh, you know, a couple completions by right aren't enough for a first there, but that brings on Stover, bangs home a 43-yarder as we head into the two-minute warning. So Ravens are up. 10 to 7 at that point and then uh after that then ray is kind of all over them on the next drive i thought it was pretty cool to like you mentioned watch him go sideline to sideline he forces the three and out uh with 27 left and a half so that's basically the half there and uh they did have the awesome on the bench with ray lewis soundbite which we're going to be throwing into this in post-production just so you know can't wait to hear it can't wait to hear it ray lewis mic'd up in week 10 against the rams They think they ready. They don't know nothing about us yet. Walk with that swagger, boy. Walk with that swagger. Let's make them play football tonight. They gonna have to play football soon. We got to believe in this, man. We got to believe in this. Touchdown. Fire! Here we come. Here we come. It's a man's game now. It might not be pretty, but they got to come see about us. Yeah, so after that, you have Nothing really crazy. You've got them driving a little bit, and uh, ultimately uh, Wright gets intercepted by Andre Dyson on a Hail Mary attempt. But it was on this drive that I learned that the Ravens carried three kickers at the time. Um, Richie? Yeah. Because Stover was very accurate, but he didn't have big-time range. So field goals, longer field goals— they would bring Richie in. Richie was also the kickoff specialist. So back then, they had a lot, a lot of teams would have a special kicker just for kickoffs. Um, and Stover was great. Zastadil, too. Let's give Zastadil a quick shout-out because he was a really solid punter. Uh, Raven special teams, man. It's been a common thread throughout the, their history. Yeah, it's not just John Harbaugh. Yeah, Zastadil was a really good punter. I think he played for the Browns and maybe a couple other teams as well. But, yeah, very well-remembered guy. But I just thought it was interesting. Do you think that like that's something that maybe if they expand rosters, I know they're experimenting that with the new CBA. Do you think that maybe more kickers could potentially help the kicking crisis that we currently face? Maybe it's not something that we think about a ton because our team – doesn't really need it, but do you think that's something that could maybe make its way back to the NFL at some point? Um, 
I could see maybe some teams carrying two kickers, not necessarily a kickoff specialist because they've changed the kickoff rules to prevent injuries. So that's not really that important anymore. But, yeah, some of these teams that maybe they could go a hot hand kicker, you know, or you you get kick them till you miss. And then the other guy comes in and tries to finish them off. Uh, it's, you would, it's kind of crazy to think that they can't find 32 decent kickers in the whole world, but uh, who knows? Well, we were saying that about quarterbacks uh, five years ago, and it looks like we're maybe getting to a critical mass point with them. So maybe uh, Matt Nagy gets a hold of this. He starts carrying three kickers, uh, and then that just starts a whole new revolution. So, uh, you know, I guess we'll see. But, yeah, I mean, that was the half. It was uh, like we were kind of talking about. It was pretty much dominated by the Titans until that Demps pick, and then the Ravens offense, I guess, starts to feed off that momentum. They get going a little bit, and they actually go into the half with the lead 10-7, to they come back out. The stats are evening out a little bit. Ravens kind of can't really get anything going on offense to uh, get the half started. They give it back to the Titans. Titans are getting their run game going to a pretty good degree, and then that sort of lulls the Ravens' defense to sleep, and I feel like that is sort of what opened up the Titans' first air touchdown, which was a deep shot to Justin McCarrens, who just absolutely mosses Gary Baxter, walks in untouched, and the Titans go up 14-10. to 10 with 7.53 left in the third. McNair with time, wants it all. McCarrens! Touchdown! Oh, did he do a nice job of playing the ball. <laughs> Gary Baxter just basically ran himself right out of the route and coverage. Um, yeah, Baxter just didn't, um, he just lost the catch point. McCarrens was, uh, he was a playmaker back then. Baxter, I thought, was a solid player for the Ravens, too. He was a second-round pick. He ended up leaving for Cleveland when his rookie deal expired for a pretty big payday. He was a pretty good-sized corner. He could tackle. He had some length to him. Um, Ravens defensive coordinator at the time, Mike Nolan, He's been a, kicked around the league quite a bit. This wasn't his best game, I didn't think, but uh, just thought that was an interesting note. He is currently the Dallas Cowboys defensive coordinator. He was the uh, so he went to San Francisco to be the head coach after this uh, tenure, I believe, and that is when he was experimenting with uh, wearing the suits on the sideline to honor Vince Lombardi. What were your thoughts on that? <laughs> Why not? I don't know. I think he was his dad coached in a suit or something like that. Uh, I don't have a problem with people being respectful. I like that, personally. Yeah. I think it's kind of, uh, it's just very, like, football guy, like, kind of funny. Like, I'm going to wear a suit and just, like, do weird shit on the sideline. Uh, but, yeah, it's it, it was kind of cool to see, like, a different um, guy in there. Because pretty much as far back as I can remember, Rex was the first guy I really remember at defensive coordinator. Was he uh, the year after Nolan went to San Francisco, or was he a little bit later? Rex? I believe so. I believe so. He took over. Rex was a D-line coach. Uh, he was a D-line coach, I believe, on the Super Bowl team, and uh, and then he worked his way up to D.C. Obviously, his, Rex's dad invented uh, a lot of the defensive techniques, so he had that pedigree, and uh, sharper than his brother, I would say, Rex. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you're talking about as far as, like, actual intelligence quotient, a whole lot going on there between the two of them, but uh, they go, you know, both coach football to a decent degree. Uh, and yeah, I think he was on that Super Bowl team. I read Collision Low Crossers, which is a book about one of his years coaching the Jets, which is uh, equal parts 
like an awesome read and totally hilarious because you get a lot of behind the scenes wreck stuff that you wouldn't really get anywhere else. But yeah, that Justin McCarron's touchdown kind of takes the life out of the stadium, takes the air out of the ball. And uh, Ravens next drive got another throwback hit on Jamal Lewis, this time by uh, Robert Smith. That sets up a third and four. And then Anthony Wright can't hit. Todd Heap, he gets jostled by Lamont Thompson, and this was the point in which Theismann just, for some reason, flips out about dudes celebrating on the sideline. I just find that funny. Third and fourth, big play for the Ravens. They would love to keep the drive alive. And right intended for Heap, incomplete. They wanted to flag on Lamont Thompson. They won't get it. Uh, and just, you know, when you're on the sideline like that, just keep your mouth shut. You already stopped the guy. The, the, there's no flag. You covered him. Everybody else, get away and shut up. No, I think that, was that Thiesman or McGuire. I thought that was McGuire. And he was kinda, going off like that was like a classic like get off my lawn old man rant. It was, I, yeah. <laughs> it was, and I circled it for that reason. I just find it like absolutely hilarious because like that's definitely not something you would hear these days. You kind of get <laughs> you kind of get what they're saying to a certain extent because it's like you don't want your team to like get you know, a penalty or something like that. But that's something that's shit that like my dad says, he's like, Oh, you know, he took his hat off. He's stop celebrating. I'm like, all right. Yeah. Like it's probably not that big a deal. Uh, all things. They were like telling him like, shut up, like shut up and like get off the field. And they were just being totally disrespectful to the players for no reason. I was like, yeah, like I don't, this definitely would not fly today, like in any sort of capacity, but it's just kind of funny going back and watching. Like it doesn't offend me or anything, but I do, uh, I did get a good laugh out of it for sure. Um, but yeah, so after that, you get some vintage Ray plays. Shooting the gap blows up Chris Brown. That sets up a third and seven. Uh, they draw Brown again, I think going to the same side, and they just blow it up again, and that forces a punt. And so Ravens get the ball. Uh, guess what? Three and out again. And by that point, Jamal Lewis, this is 131 left in the third quarter, so game is Getting close to being on ice, Jamal Lewis has 21 yards on 10 attempts for a 2.1 yards per carry average. Yeah, not great. Uh, Bullock, their linebacker, he was one of the better uh, mics in the game at the time for Tennessee. They had the number one defense, run defense in the league that year, and the Ravens had the number one run offense, and Titans won that battle. Was it Keith Bullock? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I thought that sounded right. <coughs> um, but, yeah, so – Eddie George on the next drive makes a couple plays. He has a gnarly stiff arm on Ed Reed that I definitely wanted to highlight. Uh, he picks up a first down, and they're pretty much at midfield as we're going into the fourth quarter, and the Ravens are trailing 14-10. to 10. So looking maybe a little dire with the way that the Ravens' offense is looking, but heading into the fourth quarter, you see McNair's left ankle is taped up, and Theismann is actually right about being, him being hurt. He had been speculating on that a little bit. Um, I think a few people... A lot of injury speculation. The whole team, the announcers are just speculating about injuries. He's like, I think this guy is hurt. I think that guy's hurt. It's like, okay, well, it's maybe wait a little bit on that because... I, I mean, it's different now because like you get like people tweeting about it, and that would just completely blow everything up out of proportion. But yeah, it was definitely like, what's going on? Uh, but Neil O'Donnell is the backup who they mentioned in the broadcast that they found on a golf course. In addition to Gary Anderson as their kicker who they found, I don't even know where they said it was some obscure location, but Neil O'Donnell's kind of strapping his helmet on a little bit and they're kind of speculating if he's going to go in, uh, by how many points do the Ravens win? If Neil O'Donnell had to go in, um, I don't think they blow him out. O'Donnell was pretty good. He had some good, uh, he definitely beat the Ravens at least a few times when he played for the Steelers. Okay, maybe I'm misremembering him a little bit there, but 
Anyways, you get a third and a mile, as Mike Patrick says. I always love when they incorporate the different uh, distances, especially the early 2000s guys. But McNair gets chased down by rookie Terrell Suggs, and he throws it away. And then they have a great punt, the Titans do, that pins it at the Ravens, too. And that's where the fourth quarter starts to get a little bit controversial. So you've got right in the end zone, uh, Theismann or McGuire, whichever one of the two is like freaking out about how he'd probably throw it deep. And uh, the 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 um, play by play guy is kind of like, no, don't do it, don't do it. So they're like literally just commenting on the play, like, hey, <laughs> what should they do? It's like, what what do you guys do? Like, just comment on the game. And so they do throw it deep. Wright goes over the middle to Todd Heap, winds up incomplete, but the defender is kind of all over him. And you can maybe have called it face guarding. You could have called it interference. The broadcast initially notes that he would have been interfered with if the defender didn't touch the ball. They walk that back because the replay shows that the defender clearly held him and interfered with him. And it also shows that he didn't touch the ball. So it was just a bad call in general. The Ravens now have to start at their own two. I'd throw it up. I'd throw it up. And he's back to throw from the end zone. Heat. And the crowd wants a flag and they get it. As Heap was kept from the ball by Peter Sermon. It's not face guarding, but you can't run into the receiver and prevent him from catching it. Well, I tell you, now, now wait a minute, they're talking this thing over again, but it's Todd, Ser Peter Sermon. They're going to call uh, offensive Todd, pass he, interference. They're, they're thinking about making this offensive pass interference. Now, here they go. The pass was touched by the defender before the contact occurred. Therefore, there is no pass interference. It is second down, incomplete pass. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. Yeah, I didn't get that. Yeah, so they, they threw the flag, and, you know, they, it was they were marking it off, and it was a – a pretty good. I mean, I took him to what, like the twenty-five yard line or some thirty-yard line from the two. Um, how can the same man that's doing the interfering also be the one that tips the ball? Like when you see that now, it's usually a D lineman gets his hand on the ball or something like that. I don't know if I've ever seen the uh, the safety holding with one arm, tipping the ball with the other, and that not being a penalty. Yeah, that's another thing my dad is big on is like yelling at a guy to get his head around. And uh, the defender definitely did not get his head around there at all. Uh, it was pretty bad. I think it was uh, the linebacker Sermon maybe was covering him. But ultimately, it actually didn't wind up mattering because you get a nice short run by Jamal. And then we keep mentioning Travis Taylor. He has a nice little toe tapper on the sideline to convert that third down. They get some breathing room. And uh, another pass to Marcus Robinson after that is another first down. So they're starting to get into rhythm. And I did want to ask, as we get to this point, what is your perception of Wright and this offense and how they were probably playing week to week now, having watched them for like almost a full game? Um, I think they were, they were, you know, serviceable. Um, it was, it was just so run heavy. They couldn't really pass the ball much at all. And Wright had some good sharp throws in this game. He just, didn't really look downfield too often, you know, just not enough to open things up. Tennessee just stacked the box and and that was that. Yeah, I definitely asked that at this point because they pretty much almost lose the game on the very next play. Right. He kind of tries to go back to that same route to uh, Marcus Robinson over on the left side, throws it and Samari roll just jumps it for a pretty easy interception deep into Ravens territory, I believe around their 30. Consecutive first downs. For the Ravens. 
Anthony Wright again, that one's intercepted. Samari Roll, he picked this one off, and it's Titans ball at the 30. Yeah, not a pretty play by Wright. Um, you know, it's just, when you think of it and where the Ravens have come with, with Flacco leading to Lamar, and then look back on the quarterbacking options they had, you know, uh, earlier in their history. It's it's night and day. It's crazy that they were picking between Anthony Wright and Kyle Bowler to uh, to start a playoff game. I would say of like just say this of Wright, like that whole story about him with the comeback and like playing pretty decent in this game. I think compared to what you'd expect, he's kind of punching above his weight a little bit of all just like the random like Ravens quarterbacks from the early 2000s. He's probably the one I knew the least about, but I came away uh, somewhat impressed by him sort of punching above his weight a little bit. Yeah, He was decent. I remember rooting for him to, uh, to take, to take bowler's job. Um, Cause he had a good amount of mobility. I, Honestly, there's a decent amount of similarity between him and McNair and their play style with uh, all the bootleg action and, and some of the scrambles. And, uh, but uh, just didn't quite have the arm talent you know, to, uh, to, get, to really be that kind of quarterback. Yeah, he reminded me a little bit of Tyrod with a less stronger arm, uh, especially that I think they're wearing the same number and everything, and he was just kind of running around uh, and making backyard plays. But, yeah, he was fun to watch. But... Ultimately, that could have been a really critical mistake. It kind of wasn't because the Ravens' D comes up big. Uh, they force a three and out there. And then Gary Anderson, uh, 44 years old, I believe, their kicker, comes out rocking a single bar helmet with no like face mask. Or anything. <laughs> it's like the old school helmets. I was like, all right, I don't, what is going on here? <laughs> this guy looks like he's just like came straight out of like freaking cheers, like the bar from cheers or something like that. And he's just about to kick a field goal for them actually nails it. And they go up uh, 17 to 10. Yeah. 45 yard field goal. Uh, and that one went through reasonably comfortably. Um, yeah. Just, just uh, the Ray Lewis was, did everything he could to uh, to keep him out, but when you get a good field position again, yeah, definitely. So, seventeen to ten, probably five or so minutes left in the game at this point. And on the first play of the next drive, we talk about the injury speculation. Wright gets sacked by Albert Hainsworth. They start to speculate that he might be hurt, and it's like, oh shit, are they gonna have to like send Bowler in or something? But he goes back out there and he responds by putting some plays together. He's throwing, I think, to Taylor and a couple other guys. And then pretty much out of nowhere, I think it was like in the I formation or something, uh, but the biggest play of the game probably. Second and 10. Wright launches it again. This time for Todd Heath. receivers and he throws it up where they can get it what a great call by matt cavanaugh the offensive coordinator they got the matchup they wanted tank williams on todd heath they take that matchup against the corner but when you get a young strong safety who's 225 pounds it's going to have to run down the field shoeless todd heath making the touchdown reception yes sir 35 yard touchdown to top heap on a fade uh, just high point of the ball. 
Um, he had taken a end zone shot to Travis Taylor on the previous play that Taylor had to turn into the defensive back to prevent an interception. Uh, this was probably their best drive uh, of the game. He had a bunch of catches and traffic moving the chains. Um, and, yeah, like you said, it's they recovered from that uh, that sack where Mulatalo got, uh, got beaten. And that was a pretty, pretty ball to uh, – to heap from right heap was really in his prime this is the prime time of heap i think he he made the pro bowl either this year or the next year he made a couple pro bowls in a row row right there and uh, he was one of the best tight ends obviously around yeah i mean i was reminded by mark andrews watching him on that play and the broadcast mentions that he's matched up with the uh, smaller strong safety there the young guy tank williams who he also caught that first down over to get the game going for himself but yeah, a really, really freaking awesome play that just came out of nowhere. Maybe the loudest uh, I've heard the bank, uh, or one of the loudest highlights I've heard the bank. They just went absolutely nuts because he just mossed the guy. Comes up uh, missing a shoe, and I'm curious, uh, maybe if the game results had gone differently, does Shoeless Todd Heap stick as a nickname? <laughs> Is that why they said, I didn't notice he missed a shoe? So yeah, he, uh, he was like coming down, and Williams like landed, I think, on his right foot, and it just kind of popped it off. Hmm. Yeah, I could see that. I, I uh, he had a lot of old school, old school uh, attributes to him. Yeah, definitely. So that would have been uh, especially fun if that had happened, but unfortunately not. But we'll get to that. So four twenty six left in the game. Titans take over. Place is just freaking thumping, like I mentioned. And uh, I feel like this next thing should have been an all time moment in Ravens history. Uh, with McNair dropping back, going deep down the right side. I think it was to Mason. And yep, Mason. Chris McAllister just absolutely goes up and gets it. We said whoever won this battle may win the game. It's still up in the air. McNair, blitz coming, unloads. Mason, intercepted. Chris McAllister. the call I really don't understand the call you've shut down their offense all day long if nothing else you punt them back deep you put your defense which has played tremendously on the field out there and play the game in a percentage manner that call I just didn't think made a whole lot of sense I mean it was like a defensive backs version of the Odell Beckham catch that, that made Beckham famous just full extension falling backwards uh, two hands on the ball and just stole it. C-Mac was targeted, I think, twice in this game, the entire game. Uh, it just shows you what kind of lockdown corner he was and the ball skills that he had. So, yeah, the Ravens now have good field position, and it's tied 17-all with only a few minutes left. Yeah, definitely. You kind of feel like, and I we were definitely talking about this, like I didn't remember the exact outcome of the game. I had a hunch that it went that it that it went the way that it ultimately does, but I didn't know the exact ending. So I'm kind of on the edge of my seat here. I'm like, all right, are they going to get this done? Uh, theme of the day, though. I mean, three and out by the Ravens offense, and maybe another turning point of the game comes from a familiar face in Orlando Brown. Back during the safety. There is a flag down at the end of the play. Boy, if this is another personal foul against the Ravens, it just changes field position so much in the favor of the Tennessee Titans. They punt it anyway. Orlando Brown, maybe. But it, 
He was certainly upset after the play. Well, yep. <laughs> it's Orlando Brown again. He no, there's no. After the play is over, personal foul, unnecessary roughness, number 78 in the offense. Orlando Brown. That's a 15-yard penalty, and it will still be fourth down. What hits in his mind, he's going over to defend his player. Orlando Brown, look at this. The, throwing, the tight end is thrown on the ground. By Javon Curse again, and he throws oh. him on the ground again. That is so silly. Well, you gotta, you got to wonder, what is the value of a football player if he isn't smart enough to be able to play this game? I don't care how physically talented anybody is. They have to understand the rules of the game of football and not hurt their team. Two critical mistakes by Orlando Brown. Backs him up all. Yeah, another roughness on a, on a late push. Um, I think uh, one of the Titans defenders had, was it Chester Taylor? Somebody pinned on the ground, and Zeus came over to get him off. And, of course, uh, Triplett, now that you reminded me, his uh, his nemesis drops the flag and uh, backed him up again. Yep, and uh, you get whichever whichever one it is, McGuire, Theismann, it doesn't matter. Just going off on him about how, like, it doesn't matter about the physical talent that you have. And we'll get the sound bite in there. It doesn't matter, like, the physical talent that you have if you don't have the intelligence to play this game. That was yeah, I just was, going off on him. I, yeah, I was hearing that. I was like, man, did he like do something to this guy? Like, what, is, what does he have against him? Like, I don't understand. And I actually Googled like Joe Theismann, Paul McGuire, Orlando Brown, and I couldn't find anything. But man, they were just not letting him off the hook on this one. So like, what's the point of having a guy like this on your team and like all kind of stuff? Uh, yeah, I, I think they were a little rough on, on Zeus. I didn't think either of those penalties were that bad. I really didn't. No, I mean, they were like, I mean, I guess you could maybe say like, okay, you got to keep a cool head here in that spot. That's not the time for that. But they were like treating it like they just, he just done something real, real bad to them that I'm probably not going to uh, speculate on any further. <laughs> So they lose some pretty decent field position. They have to punt it away. I think it winds up around midfield. And so Steve McNair, 16 game-winning drives in fourth or overtime heading into this drive. Are you kind of nervous rewatching this? Because I, like I mentioned, I kind of was. I remember that, that, uh, that the Ravens did not emerge victorious. But uh, wasn't, I didn't remember exactly how it, how it happened, no. Yeah, so how it does happen, it's a check down to Eddie George. He almost gets a first uh, heading to midfield. And then they kind of, they almost bungled it. Like they had a couple plays going backwards. Uh, they sort of. Yeah, got, Hartwell. Hartwell had a tackle for loss there. Yeah, and it looked like. So we mentioned Gary Anderson. They just pulled him off a golf course. He's 44 years old. He's got the stupid helmet. And it's a 46 yard kick. And it looks like it's going to be kind of a difficult one for him. Uh, I think Theismann said that. The, he pretty much just predicts that it's not going to be good and that the Ravens are going to be taking a knee after that. And it's like, okay, man, maybe like don't jinx them. Uh, but ultimately, Anderson kicks it. Uh, it is good, and the Ravens lose 20-17 to 17 after uh, a couple attempts at a Hail Mary fall flat. Gary Anderson from 46 yards. It's good. Ha! It never looked like it had a chance. The 44-year-old kicker, the legend out of Syracuse, makes a huge 46-yard kick right at the very edge of his range. Just, just barely snuck it in. 
the key play on that drive uh, was a busted coverage on Derek Mason. Um, and I think Nolan kind of got caught there. The, the Ravens had a good uh, dime back in Chad Williams at the time. And uh, somehow he left his base defense in there. Mason got free for about 20 yards. And, uh, yeah, Anderson just barely snuck it in by, like, the length of the football. It kind of reminded me of the Tucker-Detroit uh, Monday night kick where it's just literally a foot lower or a foot more to the right and you're not winning that game. Yeah, absolutely. Right there. And then it would have gone to OT and hypothetically, who knows? Who knows? But uh, the Titans did end up uh, losing the next round to the Patriots. It was a tight game. I think it was, uh, yeah, a three-point game, 17-14. to 14, And Newland ended up winning the Super Bowl that year. So Tennessee was, uh, by degrees of separation at least, they were a strong team that year. No shame in, uh, in having a tight game, tight loss to them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the draw was tough. I mean, you've got this underdog at quarterback like we mentioned. And, uh, yeah, a 12-4 and four team with the co-MVP at quarterback. They're kind of only wild cards by luck of the draw of being in the same division with Peyton Manning and the Colts when they're just at the absolute height of their power. So definitely a weird matchup. But I thought it was a really fun game to go back and watch for that reason because it's two really well good, two really good teams that are very well matched up with just strong rosters and kind of similar themes and styles in terms of how they're built. I just thought it was aesthetically a really cool game to watch. Uh, what would you say your kind of lasting memory from this one was? Uh, the Ravens just lost the trenches. I mean, that's really what it came down to. Who knows if uh, Boulware or, or Thomas were healthy, Adelius Thomas, or if Suggs was, you know, another year seasoning. I mean, Suggs was – he was kind of invisible. He won Defensive Rookie of the Year, but I noticed him maybe once. Um, just lost the trenches. 4.1 yards per carry for Tennessee, 3.4 yards per carry for the Ravens. Tennessee – had a 10-minute advantage in time of possession and three times as many rushing yards. So that was a story, I think. Yeah, definitely. Uh, me, I'm kind of curious about what happens with Anthony Wright if they win this game, especially if he does it with like maybe a uh, game-winning drive in overtime or something like that. Does that kind of change the narrative surrounding him? Because after this season, he misses all of the next season with a torn labrum, I believe. He was recovering from that, so that's Bowler getting a shot. He comes back in 05 and gets a chance to replace Bowler, uh, I think with Bowler you know, getting injured, or maybe that was performance-related, but he only goes 2-5. and five. That was his last season in Baltimore. He bounces around a little bit more. He goes to the Bengals in 06, and then the Giants in 07, he actually makes the team as the third-string quarterback, and he gets a Super Bowl ring. Hey, all, all's well that ends well. Yeah, the uh, Bowlers started that entire 2014 season um, with a sterling 13 touchdown to 11 interception. Uh, the Ravens were 9-7 and seven that year, just missed out on the playoffs. So they were right in contention. Like, it's just the defense was so good, but uh, just couldn't pass the ball <laughs> like, at all. I mean— 32nd in the league, like a few years running, you know? It just makes it so egregious, and I've thought about this a lot in my life. It's like, hey, there's this dude named Tom Brady that, like, was a five-year starter at Michigan that, like, won an Orange Bowl and was really awesome. Like, maybe you could have grabbed him in, like, the fourth round or something, and, you know, that would have been nice. But they opted to go with Chris Redman in 2000, and he was actually on this team, Chris Redman, so good for him. Yeah, Louisville Cardinal. That's uh, just like Lamar and— uh Johnny U. There was a Johnny U connection to Redmond back then. But, and then Travis Taylor, too. Let's touch on him because we, I thought he played pretty well in this game. I always thought he was a little bit underrated. Not necessarily underrated, but maybe underappreciated. Uh, he went 10th overall um, in 2000. Jamal went 5th overall that year. 
And uh, he had a massive game, I believe, uh, for Florida in the bowl game, which kind of, you know, he was kind of one of those late risers. He had some good moments for the Ravens, and you wonder what could have been if he had a competent quarterback play, um, or maybe if he was like the number two or number three option, not necessarily the number one guy that drew the tightest coverage. Um, I think when you talk about busts, Taylor is not necessarily up there with the really, you know, the huge busts that some of the ones they've had. Yeah, I mean, we were texting about this a little bit yesterday. Like, people mention him, and obviously, like, I don't fully remember uh, all of his career with Baltimore, but people mention him in the same breath as, like, Perryman and a lot of these other receivers that just completely flame out for them. And it looked like, yeah, like, you were, we were touching on it. Like, he was giving me some Steve Smith vibes, like that shiftiness and that just kind of fighting for the ball and stuff. I just thought he was, uh, yeah, an intriguing player who – if Billick had had even a competent quarterback to get him the ball, he could have been a productive player for sure. So I'm glad you uh, mentioned him there. But, yeah, I mean, other than that, you had Steve McNair. He played four more seasons, uh, two of them with the Ravens, actually. He was on that 06 team, 13-3. and And talk about not being able to take advantage with, uh, you know, rough quarterback play. That team probably was one of the better teams in NFL history that's just kind of lost to the ether now because of that situation. But uh, McNair always going to be a legend in my eyes. Uh, obviously passed away in 2009, I believe. Uh, but, yeah, he was the first African-American quarterback to win the NFL's MVP award, doing it in 03 that year, now having been succeeded by Cam Newton, Patrick Mahomes, and Lamar Jackson. Hmm, I didn't know that he was first. I thought maybe, I guess Randall never uh, never got there. Yeah, McNair at uh, 06, um, I love that defense. Just so opportunistic. And they, he was pretty good during the regular season, but it just fell apart in the playoffs. And he had a terrible game, and Heap had a bad game. And uh, that was the best, at least record-wise, team the Ravens had ever had until this last year. Well, as we've learned, you can have a great regular season team, but you just got to have that playoff mentality. Uh, otherwise, you're going down, and you're going down quick. But uh, this actually the last year that the Models were the owners of the team. They sold their majority share to uh, young Steve Bashotti following this game. Indeed, indeed. Their big, guess who their, uh, their, their biggest free agent acquisition was the, the following offseason? Who is that? Do you, no guesses? In 04? Yep. Um, he wore number 37. Oh, Deion Sanders? Yes, sir. Primetime. Oh, <laughs> they played. were really up against the cap. I mean, they were just like on this straight, like homegrown only players for like two, three years. Yeah, I mean, they had, um, you think about it, Art had just been with the Browns forever and it just kind of was one of those old school guys, maybe like how Mike Brown runs things now, just sort of family operated and like, not going to spend money. We're just going to try to draft guys and do it that way. Old school. Well, they had spent the money. I think it's just one of those. It's so funny because Ozzy said after the first Super Bowl, they kind of mortgaged the future to try to chase it the next year. And obviously, Jamal blew out his ACL in training camp, and that was that. And Ozzy said, never again. I'm not going to go all in after Super Bowl to try to double down and mortgage the future which they didn't, and they're, they're paying the price for it in 2013, or excuse me, 2003, 2004, because the roster was all homegrown. 
Then the next time they win the Super Bowl, Ozzy tries to spread it out. I'd say and, it directly, uh, yeah, it directly influenced him in that next time they won because he just well, he, gets rid of everyone. He said it. He straight up said, I'm never going to do that again. It didn't really work out the second time either because they were kind of stuck in this mediocrity limbo for a while. So who knows? Damned if you do, damned if you don't, I guess, sometimes. Yeah, I mean, that's just also kind of the Flacco paradox where you have a guy who's good enough to win with players around him but not good enough uh, if he doesn't have them. So unfortunately... They kind of got stuck between a rock and a hard place. But uh, as for the rest of the lasting legacies here, you had ABC's NFL contract ran out in, I believe, 2005. So it's unfortunate that we lost out on that. But, uh, you know, since then, Joe Theismann has done some work as a commentator for the Redskins organization uh, and some other networks. And he also has an acting career that sounds kind of sick. This per Wikipedia. Theismann has occasionally acted, although most appearances are as himself or as himself in a fictional context. He does have several TV and movie appearances, including BJ and the Bear, 1981, Cannonball Run 2, 1984, and The Man from Left Field, 1993. Theismann appeared as himself as part of a buyer group for the fictional New York Hawks football team on the 2013 TV series Necessary Roughness and on the post-Super Bowl episode Operation Broken Feather of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, 2014. His most recent acting appearances were in movies for the Hallmark Channel. In 2016's Love on the Sidelines, he appeared as the father of an injured professional football player. In 2019, he's still acting in 2019. In 2019's Snowcoming, he played an agent for professional athletes, in particular, a professional football player. Theismann has acted as a national spokesman for several companies, including Colonial Pen Life Insurance Company and for Super Beta Prostate. <laughs> that last one is really the key there. He, uh... Yeah, Lawrence Taylor uh, couldn't have broken a nicer guy's leg, I guess. Yeah, really. I mean, that's a tough scene. And, and I mean, now looking at all that Alex Smith stuff going around, you really know what the guy went through. So uh, God bless you, Joe Theismann. Yeah, and Alex Smith thinks crazy. I saw something. He had an infection because they left a piece of clothing in his leg or something. Yeah, it, man. Some of the t- pictures were circulating on Twitter. Uh, very, very tough to look at. So I do not recommend seeking them out if you are – uh, easily sort of grossed out like I am, but uh, ultimately a very cool story. So, uh, yeah, nice little side note there. Shout out to Alex Smith. Uh, but this was fun, bud. We're definitely going to be doing a lot more of these. I think this was a good one to start with, though. Absolutely. Can't wait to. Good choice. Uh, the classic Ravens defensive struggle to start the things off. Um, good choice, Jake. Look forward to, uh, to doing another one. Yeah, definitely. And a Titans playoff loss to start. I mean, look, we're just checking all the boxes here. I mean, there were some parallels to the game, if you think about it. Lost of trenches, lost of trenches, both times. Yep, definitely. So, uh, yeah, it was very much a fun one, reliving uh, this old game with you, buddy. I think we're going to try and get Spencer and maybe some other uh, people in the mix here as we continue to do these. Like you mentioned, we are in the uh, doldrums for content as the draft is now over. Uh, Sports, some speculation that they're going to be coming back sometime soon. Baseball, maybe uh, by July. Uh, and some other stuff, obviously, in the works. But uh, ultimately, yeah, right now it's going to be time to be doing this stuff. So uh, I think we're off to a good start. Absolutely, and uh, hope they do get sports uh, figured out soon. That'd be great. Yep, it sure would. Uh, But thanks for joining me, buddy, and uh, I hope you have a great rest of your night. Likewise. Peace. All right, thanks a lot. Appreciate you guys. See you later. All right, God bless. (laughs) 